0: It is often hard to follow testimonies. Um, Today is no exception. Uh, Thank you, Claire. All right, so as I mentioned last week, this is going to be part two of dealing with words or speech or communication in the book of Proverbs. As I mentioned last week, Proverbs has more to say about words than anything except wisdom. And the two are so closely intertwined uh, that we had to spend two weeks on it. And so, if you're here for the first time, we're going through Proverbs and we've, uh, we've gotten to the, the meat of the book, chapters 10 through 30, and we're approaching it thematically because that's how you have to approach Proverbs 10 through 30. So, last week we looked at the power of words. There is life and death in the power of the tongue, and how that is a reflection of God who communicates, our God who spoke the world into existence. Our God who speaks to us in his word, our God who is the word made flesh and we made in his image, are given words that we may reflect him. But in our fallen state, our words, as we read earlier from James, they can praise the Lord or they can curse as well. And so this morning we're going to look more practically at how to wisely use the power of those words. And what happens when our words are used properly or improperly. And so um, this is probably the most simple of the proverb sermons so far. Some of you are going to say amen. Uh, it's simple in that almost all of these Proverbs are self-explanatory, and they seem obvious. But this may be one of the most convicting, because every one of us probably does not give the right weight to our words, whether how much we use them or how little we use them. And so we're just going to scratch the surface of a lot of these verses. I don't think a lot of explanation is needed. So we're going to kind of move through rather quickly and give some commentary as we go. But I want you to consider them closely. Um, And there's going to be much application and examination as we go. So before we go, as we have done, uh, I want to set up the idea of speech. Uh, And like I said, the, the Bible uses lots of synonyms. So words, speech, tongue, lips, voice, Uh, All of these things convey the idea that we are creatures made in the image of God who communicate. And so I want to look at a few passages that will set us up well. So I want to begin in Isaiah chapter 6. If you you know, if you are familiar with Isaiah chapter 6, this is his, his call into ministry. And he has this unique call because God brings Isaiah before his very throne. And he sees the holy majesty of God. Notice how Isaiah responds when face to face with the glory of the Almighty. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, and saw, um, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. This is Isaiah speaking. High and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. If you see that, that's the only correct response. But notice how he speaks about his qualification. For I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Immediately, he recognizes that it's his speech that betrays him. That people are known by their, their words. And we're lost if we're judged by our words. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. Here's the remedy. Having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. That's incredible. That He sees himself as being defined by his wicked lips. And what he needs is atonement. What he needs is forgiveness. And God provides that. And then he is commissioned. Famously responds, here I am, Lord, send me. Now that I have been atoned, now that I've been forgiven, now that I've been cleansed, now I can serve you. Now I can be useful to you. And so that is the theme of all of the scriptures. Our wickedness, our sin needs to be atoned for. Our lips, our speech, it's just just the outpouring of the real problem, our sin. And so, Isaiah recognizes this. Uh, Jesus, almost commenting on and clarifying this in Matthew 15, look at what Jesus says here. Again, Jesus makes a lot of connections between words and the heart, like we looked at last week. So, uh, this is a common theme throughout Proverbs and throughout all the scriptures, Words do not have, it is not the words themselves that God is concerned with. It is the heart that these words flow out of. So here is Jesus calling the people to himself in the earshot of everyone. He says, hear and understand. This is Matthew 15, verse 10. Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this uh, this defiles a person. So knowing in those days, he's going to address this a little bit later, but the Pharisees, they were the the um, enforcers of the law, and not just the law of God, but the law of man. They loved all of these restrictions because it made them seem holy, um, and they lorded it over the people that they must do all these things externally to be seen as holy. And this is what they made the big deal of. And so all of this external show is what Jesus is addressing here. Because the people were under the thumb of the Pharisees in constant fear of their standing before God because they had uh, rule upon rule upon rule that they had to follow. So then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Jesus' answer essentially is good. But uh, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? I don't need to explain that to you. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles the person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, These are what defiles a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So we may not be the society that is hyper-religious observance. But do we give more thought to our diets and washing hands before meals than we give to the words that come out of our mouths? Are we guilty in much the same way? Many of us, in in our culture, we're so uh, obsessed with what we eat and and, uh, health, do we give the same thought to the health of our speech, the condition of our heart and what comes out of our mouth. As Jesus said, it's not what goes into the body that defiles you, but it's what overflows out of your heart that does. And so what we're going to see is that speech does not define your heart. It reveals it. Speech does not Define define your heart. It reveals what's already there. And so if we, like Isaiah, are people who have changed hearts, if our sins have been atoned for, if we have been made new, if God changes our hearts from stone to flesh, what would we expect, what should we expect to happen with our speech? Shouldn't our words follow the nature of our heart? And so, examining our speech is not mere moral improvement. And I don't want this just to be do better, and so God will will, will love you better. This is not one of those sermons. Because if you are in Christ and you know that God loves you through Christ, we should, out of gratefulness, want to honor him with our speech. And as I said last week, if you've got a problem with your speech, it's not your speech, it's your heart. That needs to be examined. So one more. Uh, we're gonna look at James chapter 1 and chapter 3. James in the New Testament deals with speech uh, in the, the, the longest explanation and dealing here. So notice uh, we're just gonna look at one verse in chapter 1. James in his church is dealing with uh, a lot of dysfunction, partiality, and um, oppression and uh, inconsistency. People with faith without, without works. Um, but notice what he says. Again, speech reveals our heart and reveals our religion. James says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. Again, James makes the same connection. If you can't control your, your, your tongue, your heart's deceived. This person's religion is worthless. You say you have faith and it's not accompanied by works, it's dead. It's worthless. Same idea. But he goes on with this longer explanation in chapter 3, and I want to read that, and we'll, we'll draw upon it as we go through Proverbs. James chapter 3, verse 1. Don't miss the connection here. Look at how he begins this section. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There is a high standard for teachers in the church. Every week, as I walk up these steps and open this Bible, I pray that I do not take lightly the weight to divide God's word, to apply God's word, Because there's a greater strictness that I and other teachers will hold account for. That is why it is so important how teachers, and first and foremost teachers, use their lips within the church, use their speech, because we are setting an example. How we speak, you will begin to speak. How we pray, you will begin to pray. If you hear someone with bad doctrine or a low view of God or a high view of themselves, they have been under poor teaching, guaranteed. But if someone loves the Lord and can rightly explain and divide the word and they exalt Christ and glorify God in their speech, they've been trained well by someone who glorifies God. And so James is saying all the problems in the church, they begin with the doctrine and the examples of the teachers in the church. Verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. Also able to bridle his whole body. Okay, we've, we are all depraved. The curse has infected every part of us. And if we were perfect, we'd be able to control our whole body. James says, start with your tongue. Because it's, it's going to direct the rest of you. Verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Consider those words as we consider our speech this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning as a great and awesome God. There is no falsehood with you. There is no turning. There is no error. You have never made a mistake. That is hard for us to comprehend because we have never known a time when we haven't. Lord, every one of us in this room, our speech has betrayed us. Some of us, before we get out of bed this morning. Lord, would you examine, help us to examine our hearts. Would your spirit convict us of sin? Would your spirit encourage us, if we are in Christ Jesus, that we are his. That we have been atoned, that we have been cleansed. We don't have to fear man and man's response. We don't have to respond in anger because vengeance is yours. Lord, help us to be people of gentle speech, people who are patient and kind, who are great witnesses for our King. Lord, may this be a time of examination, of growth in wisdom, and of training in righteousness. So that our speech may not profane the name of our God, that we may be known as people of Christ with the words of Christ. And it's in His name we pray, amen. All right, so let's dive in Proverbs chapter 10. I'm going to move through these as I have been chronologically. And we got quite a few this morning, um, and we'll move rather quickly. So all those references are in your notes. There's some additional at the end, and there's many more that I didn't get to. But beginning with Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Many words. Now we, we talk about some of the Proverbs are absolutes. Some of them are truisms. They're mostly true. Is this an absolute? Probably not. Not that every time there's many words that sin is soon behind. But is it true often? Absolutely. There is absolutely true to it. Because for us, if we're sinners and we are battling against our sinful nature every day, the longer we talk, the closer behind sin is eventually going to be. When our mouth runs, sin is probably chasing closely behind. And so one of the themes you're going to see throughout most of these is restraint, thinking before we speak, being intentional with our words. Restraint is prudent. It is wise. It is disciplined. So here's lesson number one from Proverbs. You don't have to say all the words at once. Some of us are like, amen, thank you. Some of you are like, well, how can I tell everyone everything I ever want to know? Are you, I ever want you to know. You can't. Pressure is off. So I was thinking about this. Our words are kind of like the spice cabinet. Used properly, a little bit of this and a little bit of that, it is delicious and it's received well. But you season it improperly or season it too much, it's a confusing mess. Some of you. We've had conversations that are a confusing mess. Um, Use your speech sparingly. Like the spice cabinet, know what goes with what. Uh, We looked at Colossians 4 last week. I want to look at it again. Colossians 4, 6. Now, restraint is for our words. But salt, spiritual wisdom, seasoning, um, the Bible uses salt in different ways. We saw in James that salt water can't, Uh, It's not good for for drinking. You want fresh water. But in terms of the gospel, Jesus tells us to be salt and light. So when Paul says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, you cannot overuse this salt. You can overuse your words, but you can't overuse graciousness so that you may know how how you ought to answer each person. Part of the wisdom of speech and communication is in general is knowing your audience knowing who you can unload to and who you need to be cautious with. Always season your speech graciously. But as we're going to see as we go on, if you ponder what you're going to say, if you, if you are wise and take a moment to think, you know how to season the right food properly. And it could be a delicious meal of a conversation or it could be an over-seasoned mess. And so hopefully... We can pray for, and God will grant us wisdom to know the difference. Uh, chapter 11, verse 12. Chapter 11, verse 12. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Uh, in the Hebrew, this is written as a chiasm. So it, it points itself to the middle. You've got the one who belittles and the one who remains silent on the outside, but in the middle, you've got uh, lacking sense and understanding in contrast to one another. And the way this is written, it assumes that insults have been given. Someone has been belittled in each instance. And so when you think about belittling, it's, it's, it's scorning, it's despising someone. It is looking down on them, thinking that you are more righteous and better than they are. And so one neighbor scorns the other. And he despises the one closest to him. But the prudent, the man of understanding... When he's belittled, when he's scorned, he remains silent. That is a hard thing to do. It is not easy to take an insult on the chin. It is not easy when when we are challenged. We don't like being belittled because our defense mechanism is I must defend myself. I must stand up. I must say something. I want to give you one of my favorite exhortations from the Old Testament. I love this. The best battle strategy ever, Exodus 14. Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14. I'm not going to give you the context, uh, just the verses. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which we will work for you today. This is a great principle. The salvation of God first. No, God is mighty. God is a God who saves. Don't fear. Stand firm. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. What is the instruction? What's the best battle plan ever? Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. I love that. So when you are belittled, when you feel like you have been unjustly characterized or you feel like that person shouldn't have spoken to you that way, and your response is, I need to get even. If you are in the right, you have only to be silent. The Lord will fight for you. Let's move on to the next verse. Chapter 11, verse 13. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in secrets keeps a thing covered. So slander is, is harmful information. It is trying to denigrate someone's character, trying to to put them down, trying to um, make someone else seem less. And when this is done publicly, this is public because the person goes about slandering. When it's done publicly, especially in that culture, it destroys reputations. It destroys families. It could lead to defeat in times of war. If you go out and say things that are untrue or disparaging... This person, the slanderer in that culture, now slandering is like the language of our day. It's not; It doesn't carry the weight that it did back then. But if you were a slanderer then, it should carry more weight now. You were a public menace. But here's the problem. Our flesh loves slander. We love the juicy gossip. Let me tell you about what happened with so-and-so. Did you hear about we love the next juicy thing. We love, that, we love to be brought in on hidden and secret things. But we should want to protect people and to be trustworthy. And so there is discernment on who you share secret things with. Don't share secret things with the town slanderer. There is also discernment in knowing when to share secret things. It is so easy to slander someone, to be brought in to an interesting conversation. It is much harder to keep secret things secret. That is what it means to be trustworthy. Chapter 12, verse 19, let's move on. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment This is something I don't think we think about often. Lies never last. Never. Lies cannot last. Only truth endures. Lies are words of opportunity and expediency. Words of opportunity and expediency. The opportunity presents itself for me to get ahead, for me to give myself a little bit of advantage. I'm going to take it. Or expediency. I could tell the truth, but then I'd have to do all these other things if I just lie and make my life easier. How many of us have cut corners and end up spending way more time backtracking and making corrections because we bend the truth just a little bit to make ourselves seem better or to avoid something difficult? But when you tell the truth, You don't have to make those corrections. If you plot your course correctly the first time, you won't have to reroute and reroute and reroute again. The truth endures forever. When we speak truth, we never have to correct it, we never have to adjust it, and we never have to apologize for it or make excuses for it. Heaven and earth will pass away, as Jesus told us, but my words won't. If we speak truth... The words of Christ, they will never fail. Amen. But we're often people of opportunity and expediency. So think about when you speak, when you lie, when you bend the truth, it is something that is dead because it cannot live on. And so even when we think it's just a little white lie or it's just a correction of the truth or a, yeah, whatever. That's a alteration of the truth. It's a lie. It cannot live. It is a dead thing. It will die eventually, but the truth will not. All right, let's move on. Chapter 12, verse 23. Verse 23, a prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. Prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. So where's this concealing going on? The, the, the prudent man has knowledge and is hidden in his heart. You're like, well, conceal it. Why would you conceal knowledge? You don't get wisdom if you don't understand concealing knowledge. Remember last week, Jesus told us, whatever you, you treasure up in your heart, that's going to come out of your mouth. What do you do with treasure, with something valuable? You don't spend it everywhere. You're wise with it. You think about the right opportunity and you conceal it for the opportune time. If you have knowledge stored up, you don't need to parade around and tell everyone how smart you are. If you've got good things stored up, you don't have to parade around bragging because your, your value is not in how people view your knowledge or view you. You've got real knowledge treasured and stored in your heart. The prudent man doesn't need to proclaim or prove how wise he is. However, the fool is constantly singing his own praises. The fool parades around getting everyone to look at him. He proclaims his own folly. He doesn't even care that he sounds foolish. He may not even know the difference. He just loves the sound of his own ideas, even if they're foolish. Just thinking about this. So communication is kind of like poker in this sense. If you've got a good hand... What does the wise person do? They conceal it for the right opportunity at the right time, the river is flipped over. But the fool, oh, he gets excited. I love playing poker with you guys, because and and, and we just play for pretzels and cookies and stuff. Um, but I, I love when you get the, the the good hand and you sit up straight or you get really excited and your your face there's you know the, the poker face. That is foolish in poker and it is foolish in life. We should be wise people who know when to play our hands, who know when to reveal what is concealed, uh, so that we are not seen as fools or end up being played for fools. All right, chapter 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. It's not just the words that we say, it's the tone. Tone does matter. When your mother said, watch your tone, uh, there's a reason for that. Because the tone in the heart behind an answer makes a difference. A caring and calm response can diffuse a tense situation. How do you diffuse a verbal bomb? The same way you diffuse a real one. Gently. And carefully. But what's the other side? The harsh word that stirs up anger. How quickly can a conversation go from productive to combative? One fuse lit, and that conversation can blow up and it goes sideways real quick. Those harsh, impatient words used carelessly It's like that forest that James talked about. Our tongue, all we have to do is light the match and drop it. And the kindling goes up in flame and the forest is burned and everything just goes south after that. But a gentle tongue can turn away wrath. And so we should be people of gentle tongues. We can be people of bold words and strong words, but harsh words that, that tear down, it's going to stir up resentment and anger. We don't want to be like the one who sets the forest on fire, on fire, as James said. I mean, this is the power of the tongue that we looked at last week, and here's what happens when it's used incorrectly. All right, verse 28 of the same chapter, fifteen twenty eight. The heart of righteousness ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. All right, so you may not see yourself as a person who is constantly pouring out evil things. You may be. Maybe we don't see that that side of you, and I hope not. Even if you're not the person whose mouth pours out evil things, are you the person who ponders how to answer? This is so important to communication. How many misunderstandings or uncomfortable conversations have happened because you or someone else has not pondered what they're going to say before they say it? The diarrhea of the mouth, as they say. How many of these things could be avoided if we just took a step back and pondered our response and not responded out of emotion or gut reaction? Or assume the worst about brothers and sisters, especially in the church. Chapter 17, verse 1. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Anyone ever felt this way? If you're a person who loves food, this might be a close call. It depends how good your, your, your cooking is. If your food is that good, you might be able to fight right in front of me and I would just say, pass the salt. Um, I might be the exception. But I also remember as a kid, going over to my friend's house after baseball practice or going to other, someone else's house in the neighborhood and their parents got in an argument and their parents got violent with each other. And I could not wait to get out of that house as soon as possible. Their food wasn't good either, so that, 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 that helps. <laughs> but I think most people in this room would prefer dining on crackers and cheese or whatever the gluten-free, dairy-free version of that is. I don't know. Um, rather than Thanksgiving dinner ruined by family drama, right? We would say crackers and cheese in peace any day. Again, self-explanatory. It explains itself. But this is how important and how much power our words have. And being used harshly and to stir up anger, it can ruin everything, including many thanksgivings. All right, chapter 17, verse 28. Oh, I love this one. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. There is great wisdom here. If you're a fool and you wait to speak or don't speak at all because you don't know the answer, you might not be as foolish as you think. But some people are experts on every subject, on everything, and they often sound foolish. Because if they don't know the answer, they will make it sound like they do or try to pull one out of thin air and then... The secret is up. We know that you're a fool. Um, here's, here's a little piece of advice. You're not wrong until you say it. If, it. if you're just thinking about it in your head, you're not considered wrong yet. But when you speak it, there is no stupid question that has not been asked. Once you ask it, it's now a stupid question. And yes, there are stupid questions. This is why humility is such a big part of our speech. There is great wisdom in saying, you know, I don't know the answer. Maybe I shouldn't speak up. And you might seem more intelligent than you really are. Uh, let's move on. Chapter 18, verse 13. Chapter 18, verse 13. Here's another great one. If it hasn't gotten uncomfortable yet, it's about to be. Um, if one gives an answer before he hears... It is to his folly and shame. This is huge. Anyone ever been in this conversation? Which side? (laughs) This is one of the hardest things in conversation. When someone hears the first word and and, and assumes your entire point and then runs off on this whole tangent and you're like, that completely missed the mark. When someone hears the first word and responds before you can get your entire thought out, how frustrating is that? And how often do they end up sounding foolish? There is no wisdom without hearing. There is no wisdom without listening. There is no wisdom without processing the information. Part of being wise is being a good listener. Listener. And listening to the words that they are actually saying rather than the words that you want them to say or you're afraid they're going to say. And you can't do that if you're always talking. And you can't do that if you're talk over the person who you're supposed to be listening to. Just as James' illustration of the the bridle in the bit, the little piece in the horse's mouth. If he just controls the mouth, you can control this great beast. No different with us. If you can control our little mouths, sometimes we can control the whole beast and save ourselves a lot of shame. Just like the rudder, a little adjustment in the rudder, in the mouth, can save us from calamity. Let's go on to verse 17 of chapter 18. Here's another great one for our culture. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examine him. This is a sign of our times. Let's take a... Um, stop here for a moment. This is, how, this is how information is broadly communicated in our day. And too many of you learn this way. Think about the, the major news stories. Someone gets out ahead of it first... They present a narrative, and then everyone runs with it. The headline becomes the storyline. How many of you believe what you read in the headline and fill in the rest of the storyline, or just blindly, deftly, listen to the first case that's presented? How much drama and destruction of life and property could be saved if we didn't go off the first thing that was said and wait for the evidence. We as Christians should do the same thing. We let us be people who examine all the facts. We live in a day of snap judgments. First thing I hear, that's right. Let's not be those people. Let's be the people who examine and listen to all of the the perspectives. We have to do this all the time in the church. Someone comes to us and says, so-and-so did this, or this happened. And if, and if Jesse or I acted off of the first thing that, that, that we heard, and they, they may even have their version of the facts correct. But without speaking to the other person, we realize, oh, there was more at play here. Things are not always as simple as, as they seem. And especially when you're dealing with brothers and sisters. Wait. Reserve judgment. Ask questions. All right, let's move on. 22:17. Ah, uh, this is just a great a great example of Hebrew parallelism and not much explanation needed, but I want you to see the connection between words and heart here that we've been looking at all along. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your heart to my knowledge incline apply hear the words apply your heart what are the words they are wise which is a parallel of knowledge Um, nothing more to say there than this is what we've been saying all along the words of the wise and the heart of knowledge are synonymous in the hebrew understanding what is in the heart will manifest itself in the words that you say and the words that you hear all right, let's move on. Chapter 23, verse 9. 23, 23, 9. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your words. There is great wisdom in who you try to teach, and who you try to persuade. If someone may not listen to wise words, you might be wasting your time and your breath. And you may even create an enemy. Jesus told his disciples, if they don't receive you, shake the dust off your sandals and move on to the next town. And that brings up one of the least popular sayings of Jesus, Matthew 7, 6. One verse, Matthew 7, 6, where Jesus says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before the swine, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Well, What is Jesus saying here? Not every ground is fertile ground. Not every hearer is going to respond. And there is discernment in knowing, am I going to impart wisdom for a fool for two hours? And he's more entrenched in his opinion, and I've just wasted two hours of my time. We need to recognize where and who are um, appropriate recipients of wisdom. Wisdom. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he would despise the good sense of your words. This is true in evangelism. There is a time to reason and persuade. And if that person is receptive and in the conversation is going well, great. But then there's a time to proclaim and leave them without excuse. This is for the skeptics who don't care about answers. Every one of us who has a heart for someone to be transformed and desires to share the gospel has been engaged in this frustrating, endless cycle of my answer for your answer, my answer for your answer. When it gets to that point, I just proclaim and walk away. Okay, you really don't want to have an intelligent conversation. You really don't care. Here's the facts. You're dead in your sin. You need to trust in Jesus Christ. Whatever you think, it's not going to save you. It can't. Whatever you're trusting in, it is not greater than Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him. If you want to talk about him, I'm happy to. If not, see you later. I've had those conversations, and it's the best conversation I've ever had. Because Christ is is proclaimed, they're left without excuse, and I can walk off and save myself the rest of my sanity. So here's the thing in this verse. I think a lot of us are disappointed when we share the gospel because we expect everyone to love us when we do. We expect the fool, the one who in his heart says that there is no God, to respond thankfully. I'm so glad you shared the good news with this God I don't believe in because I'm my own God. Thank you for enlightening me. That's not how they respond. They will despise you for the sense of your word. The gospel, by its nature, divides. The wisdom of God will be either the best news you ever hear, or it's going to make you so angry. Because the wisdom of God says there is one true and holy God. He created us in his image. And we are created to worship him and be in communion with him. And our sin separates us from him. And with our sin, we die apart from him. And we have no hope apart from his righteousness on our behalf. We have no hope apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. This is truth. This is godly, biblical wisdom. Some will love you and some will hate you for those words. We shouldn't be surprised because this is what Jesus told us. Proverbs 10, not Proverbs, Matthew 10, verse 34. Here's another very unpopular saying of Jesus. Matthew 10, verse 34, where he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Well, they can do that on their own. (laughs) And a person's enemies will be those in his own household. The gospel divides Every one of us has a divide in our family over the gospel. Every one of us has family members we avoid or avoid us because they don't want to talk about Jesus and we don't want to not talk about Jesus. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Those are dividing words. Lost or found. Dead or alive. With me or against me. It's meant to divide. And so I think we need to get over ourselves a little bit. Um, If you think... Becoming a Christian, the world's going to like you. You read the wrong pamphlet. Uh, They're not going to. They're not supposed to. You are undermining their very worldview, their hope, and their entire identity. So sometimes you have to be hated. And you, for speaking wisdom, will have to be seen as a fool by someone else. So I could be on this all day. Uh, Let's move on. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 15 and 16. What a beautiful contrast. It is so different with the wise and righteous person. You speak to a fool, he's going to despise you for your wise words. But here's the wise son having a con- or wise father having a conversation with the wise son. Proverbs 23, verse 15. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. My innermost being will exalt when your lips speak what is right. So I know just a moment ago it felt very tense. Because you've been in those combative conversations. You don't like those combative conversations. I did that on purpose. I wanted you to see this in direct contrast. How beautiful is it when, we, when someone speaks of th- something that makes our heart rejoice? When we have conversations with a brother or sister and we are just built up by righteous things. We recount the faithfulness and the goodness of God. We proclaim and give God all the glory as Claire did when he brings us through our suffering. When he takes us from darkness to light. When he provides for our every need. When he saves our lives. When he provides for our family. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. My innermost being, another word for heart, or another phrase for heart will exalt when your lips speak what is right. Here's the heart. If you speak righteous things that are pleasing to God, our hearts stir. Our hearts lift up. There is a vital connection between our words and our affections. This is the sign of the condition of someone's heart. Deep down in your inner being, do you rejoice when Christ's name is spoken? Do you rejoice when there is encouraging words from brother to brother? Do you rejoice in the things of God? We should love seasoned speech. This is what marks someone who has a transformed heart because our heart jumps at the things of the one who has transformed it. Chapter 25, verse 15. Got a couple more and we'll close. Three points of conclusion, then we'll close. Um, Chapter 25, verse 15. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break bone. What a great picture of patience and soft words. Patience persuades. We're impatient people. We expect, I'm going to make my case because I've got the better case. Of course I'm right. You should be persuaded to my side of the table first time around. How often does that work? Not very often. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded. And a soft tongue will break a bone. This sounds counterintuitive. But not if you're appealing to the heart. Because it is the Holy Spirit who works on the heart. It is not the strength. We cannot break a heart of stone. We cannot break a bone. We cannot soften hearts and minds. I think we lose this often when we look at 1 Peter 3, which we will now. This is kind of the apologetics verse. This is how we defend the faith, as we should. But we kind of stop at always being ma- always being ready to make a defense i want you to see this first peter chapter three in context verse 13 now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good they may harm you in this life but ultimate harm they can't kill your soul they may kill your body But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. When we think about our speech, when we think about confronting the world or the world confronting us, our main concern should be righteousness, not whether we have to suffer or not, not whether they will like us or not. Before we can defend our faith, this must first happen, verse 15, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Before anything can come out of our mouths, our hearts need to be in order. If you are not humbling yourself before the sovereign hand of God, before you share the gospel, you are missing who's actually doing the work. And if you don't, you will be prideful and if it goes well, or you'll be broken if it doesn't. But if Christ is honored in your heart as holy, all of your words flow out of that. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, that for the hope that is in you. Not to have the best argument, but for hope. We're not just trying to be right. We are giving people living hope. I have assurance that if I die, when I leave this building, I will be with Christ forever because of what he's done for me. If he is sanctified in your heart, if he is set aside as holy, that will be your response yet do it with gentleness and respect. Because sometimes we miss that. I love when people are evangelistic and apologetic in their approach to the gospel. But it does sadden me when so many Christians love being combative in the streets and love shouting people down. And they miss the second half of this verse with gentleness and respect. Now let's be clear. Gentleness is preferred Remember earlier I mentioned the kind of two scenarios. When someone's listening, when you're defending and presenting the gospel, be gentle and do it respectfully. But there is a time for boldness. Boldness is required for correction and refutation. So when you are defending the faith, when someone is asking you about your hope, when you get a chance to declare Christ, be gentle and respectful. But there were many times when the apostles or Christ himself were confronted unrighteously and the name of God is is profaned. There is boldness there and it has its place for correction and refutation. All right, let's move on to our final verse. Proverbs 29 verse 20. Proverbs 29 verse 20. This is a great summary of kind of distilling it down of everything we've seen so far. You see a man who is hasty in his words. There is more hope for a fool than for him. A hasty man who doesn't think that words are important, doesn't consider them, no filter, no salt. You're no better than a fool, especially after this sermon. So, in our conclusion, what do we do with all these? Lots of practical advice, and we could keep going, and um, I could preach for the, to the end of the year on this stuff, but um, I'm going to make it to the end of the sermon. Um, we should be people of redeemed speech. I'll give you three reasons by three words. Number one, speech. God sanctifies our hearts and also our speech. Hopefully I've made that, that case. We are made new creatures through Christ. What does that new self produce? What should the overflow of our heart look like? When your your pot on the stove overflows, it's only going to overflow what is already in it. And so if we are transformed, we should overflow what is in us. What does this look like? I want to look at Ephesians 4. This will be our last parallel. But as Paul looks at this new self, You've put off the old. You've put on the new. You've, you were created after the likeness of God. You were walking in true righteousness and holiness. Here's what Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. First and foremost in the church, this is what we should be known for. We are new creatures. Put away falsehood and lies from one another, toward one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Notice how much uh, Paul deals with all kinds of action here, but notice how much he addresses speech. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as it fits the occasion. It's especially true in the church that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Why do we speak the way we do? Because we've been redeemed. Why do we act the way we do? Because the Spirit of God indwells in us and has sealed us for the day of his return. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Back to Isaiah: If we've been forgiven, shouldn't we look like this? Shouldn't we be known for this? When we speak, do people hear the fruit of a transformed heart coming from our lips? Number two: first word of speech, second word is heart. As we've seen all along, it can't be mere words. It can't be just lip service. Words are important. But right doctrine that does not fear the Lord is bad theology. Right doctrine that does not fear the Lord is bad theology. Because if it doesn't come from a changed heart, it is as worthless as the religion in James. Let me shock some of you. The demons have a better understanding of theology, of who God is, than any of us do. You have never stood before the throne of God. They have, as Isaiah. They were thrown out. Satan can quote scripture better than anyone in this room. Words in and of themselves are useless. But unless, like Isaiah, we have seen the holiness of God, and we repent and recognize our own condition, we are broken down to our heart, our words are useless. But if we have, if our speech comes out of a transformed heart, then it is powerful to the praise of the glory of God. Number three, speech, heart, and now Christ. It is the gospel that, is div- that divides because it is Christ that divides. This is what will separate the sheep from the goats. This is the one word the one name under heaven that divides all of humanity. This is the one word that separates us and defines us. I shared a video with Pastor Masih from Pakistan. I shared the conversation this morning. If you were not here for those, I'll give you a little insight. Uh, We've been able to, and we'll try to continue to help a church in Pakistan. And I found out this week that every believer, if not, or most believers, if not every believer in Pakistan has the same last name, Masi. I was like, oh, that's interesting. He says to me, no, brother, Masi means Christ. Every believer in Pakistan, whether they are born or converted, takes the last name Christ that stopped me in my tracks and that humbled me because Christ is my identity but I don't know if I understand what it means to bear the name of Christ like they do and so I want you to think about this this morning would we speak differently if we changed our last name Or do some of us like hiding the fact that we're a Christian because we can kind of blend in with our coworkers? We can be seen like everybody else. We secretly don't want them to ask what we did on Sunday. But if our last name was the name of our Savior, would we be different than we are now? This was very convicting for me. And having the relationship with this pastor is very convicting. If you were, here's a great plug for intercessory prayer. If you don't come to intercessory prayer at 930, you missed out this morning. I didn't know he was going to call. He said, hey, brother, good morning. Can I call? I said, well, we're uh, praying and taking communion. But sure, you know, I thought he was going to join us for the doxology. I turned the phone around and he preaches to us for five minutes. Every conversation with him is all about Christ, is all for the glory of God. And it is extremely humbling and extremely motivating when I talk to a brother like that. This is how we should be to one another. Christians are people who not only believe but speak the gospel. How could we not? With all of our stuff and all of the material blessings we have, it's easy to lose sight But if you've got nothing but the clothes on your back and the sandals on your feet and the salvation in Jesus Christ, how much do you think you'll speak of him? We of all people should be most grateful. We have been redeemed by the God of the universe through the blood of his son and sealed by his spirit. Who do we have to fear? Does our speech reflect that? Let's pray. Lord, we love you and praise you this morning. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the name of Christ that we do not deserve, that we far too often are ashamed of. Let us wear his name proudly and boldly. Let us be people of seasoned speech so that outsiders may look and wonder Why do they talk like that? Why do they look like that? Why do they act like that? That we can be witnesses for your kingdom, that Christ may be exalted in our lives and in our speech. Lord, thank you for redemption, for regeneration, for a heart that pumps the blood of Christ. I pray for anyone in this room who is still dead and my words are falling on very deaf ears. Lord, would you bring them to life? Would your spirit revive them? Would the words from my mouth not be my own, but would your word pierce bone and marrow, soul and spirit, and revive the dead, that you may be glorified in their redemption. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.